This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Winter Olympics are top of mind for Tony Pigford of Denver. Not so much this year's games. He's thinking about Denver's potential bid for the 2030 event, and he is adamantly opposed. Pigford's a member of the newly formed No Olympic Committee. It's planning a ballot initiative that would let Colorado voters decide if they want to host. And Tony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. By day, you help lead a charter school in Denver, and uh, you're actually joining us from the school now. You're part of this opposition group. I'll say the governor and Denver's mayor put together a 2030 exploratory committee, which has not come to a decision yet. But what's the biggest reason you don't want Colorado to host the Winter Games? I think it would be a a tremendous risk and potentially a loss of billions of dollars for city and state taxpayers. It would potentially exacerbate inequity in our city and region. And really, when I think about this, the, the true measure of the health of any city or state is how we treat our most vulnerable. And we already have policy to a certain extent that makes the plight of our most vulnerable and marginalized harder. Um, and to prioritize a, a mega project that directs billions of dollars um, that won't benefit the common good, um, that will benefit you know corporations, politicians, and high net worth individuals, morally for me is the wrong direction to go right now. You talk about inequity. I think part of what I'm hearing from you is your concerns about the gentrification in the metro area, this squeezing out the displacement of people. Yes, I'm, I'm very concerned about that. And my concern started back in 2015 after the local election in Denver where seven new city council members were elected and before they got sworn in, uh, the lame duck city council pushed through a bunch of ma- mega projects that are now housed in what's called the North Denver Cornerstone Collaborative. That's the I-70 expansion, the stock show redevelopment. There's six big projects uh, involved in that. And so that's when I started to be more attuned to what these mega projects do to local communities, what do they do to low-income communities of color, and gentrification, unfortunately, and forced displacement is a big part of that, uh, on top of um, damage to the environment, etc. I spoke recently with Rob Cohen, who leads the Exploratory Committee, and he listed what he sees as positives that would come from hosting the Games. Having events like this is something that communities rally around and create excitement for them and and pride in their community. It has economic benefits, obviously, if uh, people come here and spend uh, money that we can then utilize to help our own community. We'll talk about the economics in just a bit, but to that idea of the Olympics creating pride in a community, do you think that would be the case? To a degree, um, I think that there are a lot of positive things that happen in, in Denver and in our state that need to showcased. I mean, Denver is a a really great city, but you have to think about who it's been great for. Has there been equity at the core of our growth? And so, sure, would there be rallying around the Olympics and excitement? Yes. Um, We can get into the economics later. There wouldn't be any long-term financial benefit. And there's the potential of losing billions and billions of dollars. So to have a really cool three-week party that highlights our city and state, I mean, to a degree, that's neat. Um, But if we're concerned about equity and equal access and vibrancy for everybody in Colorado, uh, that isn't enough for me. A a three-week Olympic party uh, just won't cut it. So one theme I'm hearing from you is risk. And yet one argument in favor of the Games is that they'd be paid for with private funding, at least according to the Exploratory Committee, that 
taxpayers wouldn't be on the hook. Here is Janice Sinden at one of the online community meetings that the committee held. There should not be any tax burden left to any government, whether it's the state, a local government, a municipality, and also any impact on those local communities should be included in the overall budget and cost for putting the games on. The U.S. cities that have hosted either Summer or Winter Olympics since 1960 have not been saddled with any debt. They have actually seen, several have seen um, a legacy fund established based on revenues that went above what they needed. That was true for Los Angeles, for instance, which ended with a surplus. So let's get into the risk. Let's get into the economics of this. Uh, What do you base your concerns on? Well, Los Angeles is the uh, outlier. That is the only time that that you can say what you said about um, the cost of the Olympics. I would love everybody to look at a University of Oxford study about the cost and to say that no public money will be spent is ridiculous. And And the proof is in the pudding. The IOC requires that the host city sign a document that states the host city will cover the cost of overruns. Um, every other Olympics has required the taxpayer guarantee, uh, with the exception of Los Angeles. So local and state state taxpayers will end up paying for the overruns. Uh, the Olympics have the highest average cost overrun of any type of mega project. Um, cost overruns have been found in all games without exception. Um, there's no other type of mega project in the, in this case like that. Forty seven percent of the games have cost overruns above one hundred percent. So. Uh, her statement was that, that that should not happen, and I agree it should not happen um, as far as city and, and state taxpayers picking up the bill. But when you look at the history of the Olympics, that's been the norm. But, Tony, isn't that the sort of old model of the Games where there was a lot of construction of new facilities, often facilities that in the years after the Games sat empty, versus the goals of a more streamlined Olympics these days to use existing facilities or even ones that are temporary and can be torn down. Uh, I suppose advocates for the games would say uh, you're basing that on on an old model when they come to town. What do you say? You know, I can understand that to a degree, but I haven't seen the new model executed, and I don't know if this is the time in our city and state history to be the pioneers of creating this new model when we've got a lot of major crisis-level issues that we need to address. Um, I haven't seen it. I'm, I'm a fourth-generation Denverite. Um, I've never attended the Olympics, but we would need to build significant infrastructure. And one thing that's frustrating is that our city and state leaders – Propose that there will be housing created uh, from this, like the the, the athlete uh, housing could be used to help us with our, our our crisis. And we're desperate for affordable housing here in the in the region and in the state. And we have a, a crisis, and that small affordable housing, five hundred to a thousand, you know, dorm room style units, in twelve years after the Olympics, doesn't address our current needs. We need thirty thousand units uh, yesterday, and that's just in Denver and not throughout the region. And so for me, at the, at the, at the base of this, this is about uh, priorities. And we shouldn't be prioritizing very high-risk mega projects and, and chartering this new pioneering way of doing this different than it's never been done before, not now and possibly not ever. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Tony Pigford. He's part of the newly formed No Olympics Colorado Committee. And uh, it it seems, Tony, in some regards, your view of the Olympics is based on the idea that the city can't walk and chew gum, 
That is, you you can't create affordable housing and do the Olympics uh, in any meaningful way. It sounds like you doubt the city has the capacity to take this on and address its issues. Is is that fair? That is is fair. And sometimes if you have the capacity to take on an issue, that doesn't mean that you should take it on. You should prioritize what is most important. And in, in my view, uh, the common good and the most vulnerable and most marginalized in our community should be at the top of that priority list. So it isn't really, for me, an idea about uh, cap- capability of our city um, to do that. But I also have reservations there because I feel like we've mismanaged our growth already. And we've shown historically that we're struggling um, with absorbing the amount of people that are coming here and still creating an, an equitable and vibrant community. So I think we do have a track record that I guess leans towards that way that that we aren't uh, capable of doing both. You talked about the need for significant infrastructure if the Olympics come. I remember talking to Governor Hickenlooper about this, and he said, listen, there are weekends in the metro area where there are three festivals going on, say in the summer, that represent approximately the number of people who'd be here for the Olympics. What do you base that assertion on, that there would need to be significant infrastructure investments? I'm looking at, at existing projects that are already a part of the North Denver Cornerstone Collaborative and other projects. We've got a $1.5 billion DIA gate expansion on deck, $1.9 billion, and this includes finance costs, which you know they won't talk much about, but for the National Western Complex, um, potentially $2.35 billion for the I-70 expansion, $68 million to upgrade the 16th Street Mall. Um, I could go on. $400 million for the Platte to Park Hill stormwater project that is to protect I-70 from flooding and protect the stock show redevelopment from flooding. From flooding. And these are all, um, and we're getting more information about this, projects that have been uh, in conversation with planning for the Olympics. This Olympics conversation has been going on for quite some time, although the newly formed committee will tell you they've just recently been working on this. But I'm already seeing projects that will be used um, to bring the Olympics here. Colorado turned down the 76 Winter Olympics after winning the bid. And I will say that that was achieved by a popular vote. And so let's talk about a big goal of your No Olympics movement, which is to put, I guess, a bid right to the vote of the people. Just briefly, how would that work? Well, we're looking into that. I mean, it's a lever that we'll use if we need to. We're hoping that we can educate as many people about this as well as the Olympic Committee uh, themselves to to not move forward with a bid. Um, Ideally, we'd approach the state legislature and get a vote on the ballot um, in November. We have a a huge election coming up anyway, but we think that we should let the people speak on an issue um, that could cost uh, city and state taxpayers billions and billions of dollars and exacerbate inequity. So um, we're just forming uh, this uh, No Olympics uh, group in an effort to oppose this potential Olympic bid. And a vote to the people is something that we're considering very seriously. And um, I think it's always best to uh, let the people speak on important issues. Uh, I'll say the Exploratory Committee has been trying to engage the public, as I said, with public forums. They had an online survey although it was changed after complaints that it was too rah-rah. In about the last 20 seconds, Tony, um, from what I hear, it sounds like you think they've made up their mind, despite the fact that they they say this is just a process of gathering information, very briefly. 
Yes, I think they have. I think meetings have been going on for quite some time. I think that the community outreach now has been hollow. I attended a meeting at a public building where I was told not to record any video and the public wasn't invited. So it, I, I would be surprised if they um, did cease moving forward with this. It does seem like it's been in the plans for a long time and it has not included the people's voice, which is unfortunate. Tony Bigford, part of the newly formed No Olympics Colorado Committee, And you can check out our conversation with the Exploratory Committee's head at CPR.org for a different view. If I asked you what's the first school shooting of the modern era, you might answer Columbine. But in 1979, a teenager opened fire at a San Diego elementary school, killing two and wounding nine. When asked why she did it, the shooter declared, I don't like Mondays, a phrase made infamous in a song by the Boomtown Rats. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. I want to shoot. The whole day down. Mona Klein of Aurora was a student at Grover Cleveland Elementary School that day. And she says it's not the only mass shooting that has hit close to home for her. Mona, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Thank you. You were shaking your head as you heard that song. I mean, just just think about if in this day and age, a musician made a song about Columbine. That's just outrageous. Hmm. You were 12 years old. I understand it was a pretty ordinary start to the day. This is January 29th, 1979. What do you remember about the early parts of that day? It was, as usual, walking to school. We always had, uh, we ate the little honeysuckles off the bushes on the way to school. And, you know, just a normal day. And then it all started cracking off. What happened? Um, We heard noises, but I had no frame of reference at the time (laughs) what a semi-automatic weapon would sound like. Um, So we heard the popping and people dropping, and one of the girls I was with was one of the uh, girls that was shot. Uh, She didn't even know she was shot. I think think the shock and awe just took over, and people were yelling, get down, get down. What did she think had happened to her? Bee sting, uh, backfire of a car. It was just, we couldn't get our minds around it. Okay, so you you heard the order to get down, get down. Who who was shouting that? I think it was various people were coming out of the school. The principal was trying to pull people into the office, and that's when he was killed. The custodian was trying to pull people, and he was killed. Um, it was just madness. I, I really couldn't tell you who was speaking to us at the time. What happened to your friend? She ultimately was healed. Um, I believe she still has a colonoscopy bag because of it. Um, she was damaged pretty badly. A colostomy bag yeah. as a result. So this was before the 24-hour news channels, before cell phones. I wonder how your families found out what, what occurred. It, it, exactly. We had to st- sit on top of the school ground um, and wait in the buses that came and picked us up. The buses pulled in front of the shots and we were able to get on the buses, and they took us away. Um, you know, they didn't have automatic call systems to tell people, keep your kids home or, you know, that nature. But um, my mom didn't find out till many hours afterward. Do you remember her reaction? I can't even describe the sheer terror on her face. Absolute panic. Um, this just doesn't happen back then. I mean, that was leave it to beaver time. You know, we were just happy-go-lucky, and that changed everything. What do you remember making of it in the hours and the days afterwards? You know, I really can't remember it. I think that I just 
blocked it out of my memory. Oh. And, and it's been coming up more and more due to the f- massive school shootings going on in America today. With each new event, With each you're, new you're event. reminded. Yeah. I'll say that the principal and custodian were killed, eight students wounded, so was a cop. Did you go to any funerals, a memorial service? We never talked about it again. It was one of those, this happens, that's it. It's never going to happen again. It's one fluke incident. This happens. It's never going to happen again. Never. Famous last words. Exactly. The shooter, Brenda Spencer, was a 16-year-old girl who lived across the street from the school. That's where the shots were coming from, right? Right. Did you know her? No. uh, My brother went to school with her. She was in um, junior high or high school, I believe. Um, But I did subsequently learn quite a bit about her, of course. What did your brother know about her, if anything? Very quiet, very withdrawn, and, and hardly ever went to school. As we mentioned, when Spencer asked why she did it, she said, I don't like Mondays, although it became clear that she had a lot of emotional problems. Uh, Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats wrote that, that pop song, still on the radio today. What, what else have you learned about Spencer that has surprised you? Uh, her horrible upbringing. I think if someone would have been able to intervene in her life much earlier, maybe we wouldn't be here today. I mean, the poor girl wanted a radio for her birthday, and her father gave her a semi-automatic weapon. I mean, that tells you what kind of household she was in. What do we know of her today? Today, she's still incarcerated. She's been denied parole. Um, over the years, I've had, I have written to her um, just trying to express that in researching her, I feel horrible about her life. Horrible life. And she's someone that had nothing, so she has nothing. Um, has she ever responded? No, never. Do you know if she's gotten the letters? I don't. And, and this whole thing has triggered me to try to reach out again. Interesting. When you say this whole thing, I, I gather you're talking about what happened in Florida yes. and just the, the fact that these stories of mass shootings and school shootings in particular keep recurring. Yes. And, and the reason I tried to reach out to you all is that I don't believe the issue is guns and I don't believe the issue is schools. It's something a lot bigger. It's, it's the mental health. It's the intervening. And I don't know how to do this, but the intervening with families younger and, and trying to get involved and trying to help them before something like this even evolves. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Mona Klein, who we learned recently lives in Aurora. She was a student in 1979 at uh, an elementary school in San Diego, where a young woman opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle, killing two adults, wounding eight children and a police officer. I think it's so often that uh, we, especially in Colorado, think of Columbine as the first modern school shooting, but this was obviously, years prior. How would you say this event changed the course of your life? My understanding is that it had some influence in your college and career choices. Absolutely. Uh, My career choices have been law enforcement. I was a law enforcement officer. I'm now an investigator. I find that it has pushed me in the direction of making right out of wrong and trying to help those that seem to not be able to help themselves. It's, It's changed my whole life. You wrote a dissertation about this? Yes, in college, about school shootings in America. And I I think my professor was dumbfounded because it wasn't really an issue then, but it was for me. Uh, That your family didn't talk about it after it occurred. Do you think that that has had some lasting impact? I do, but I, I think that no one is really equipped to deal with something like this. I mean, we were living the ordinary life. Let us keep living our ordinary life. So... Yeah, I, I guess I could 
see why she wouldn't have or they wouldn't have. They just wanted it to go away for us. Does this give you some sense of what the students in Florida might be going oh, through? Yes. I, I, I'm so enthused by them wanting to get involved and change the, the gun laws. Uh, yeah, unlike you, many unlike of them me. think guns are the issue. I'm a gun owner. I'm all for guns uh, as long as they're in the right hands. But I think the issue is is the person in our community that has the problem that thinks that the only thing they can do is act out in that manner. But you admire their activism. Absolutely. I mean, it gives them an outlet. I didn't have an outlet at the time, so oh. I think that really helps them heal. You live in Aurora, not too far, I understand, <laughs> from the movie theater where a gunman opened fire right. in 2012. right. Uh, talk to me about how that experience affected you in, in your own backyard once oh, again. I can't get away from it. There's been multiple situations throughout my life, and that was just another one. And, and it's, it's, again, not the first thing I thought of. We're not addressing the problem. This man had mental health issues that people were well aware of, and no one intervened. Do you think this will continue to, to direct your life in some regard? Absolutely. I think since I'm talking about this now, it's really stimulating the things I'm trying to change is people's outcomes and people's hope and it, that the people that don't have nothing have nothing to lose, but I want them to have something. Mona, it's a painful chapter, and I appreciate your digging back into it with us. Thank you for having me. It's Mona Klein of Aurora. She was a student at San Diego's Cleveland Elementary School in 1979 when a young woman opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle, killing two adults and wounding eight children and a police officer. We are having a lot of conversations about guns these days. Recently, that included an idea to let judges temporarily take guns away from people who appear to be a threat. And we got a question afterwards. How do those gun owners get their firearms back? Listener Tom Parsons wrote in to say he owns guns and might support this idea, but asks, where does it end? So we called back our guest, Mary Blagan from Colorado Ceasefire, which is pushing to get so-called gun restraining orders in Colorado. When the judge rules that he or she is no longer at risk for violent acts towards self or others, the firearms will be returned and the name will be removed from the background check database. As for the nitty-gritty, she's not sure exactly what the process would be to return a gun to its owner after the restraining order expires, usually within a few weeks. She understands a lot of people are worried, but she's investigated models from other states. I looked at as many laws as I could find in the details, and nobody specified down to that level. And I guess some people are quite fearful that, you know, someone could falsely claim that they were at risk or a risk and someone could come and take their firearms. I would hope that the law enforcement process and the judge process, the court process, would eliminate that or at least reduce it to a small, small percentage of cases. In the first year of California's gun restraining order law, 86 people were ordered to temporarily give up firearms. In 10 of those cases, the order was extended past the initial few weeks. And so our conversations will continue. Are there gun rights or gun control questions you want to know more about? Find all the ways to reach us at CPR.org slash connect. This is Colorado Matters.
Investigator Greta Lindekrantz has now spent more than a week in the Arapahoe County Jail, and she could be there a lot longer. CPR's Allison Sherry has more on the religious objections that landed her behind bars. My Lord, guide my feet while I run this race. Members of the First Mennonite Church of Denver have been holding occasional vigils outside the Arapahoe County Jail since last week. Her Mennonite faith is what landed Greta Lindekrantz in a cell there, on contempt of court. Last week, before heading to the hearing where she refused to cooperate with prosecutors, Lindekrantz prayed about it. Here's her pastor, Reverend Vern Rempel. This is something that is not a mood of Greta's. It's something that has been a lifetime commitment for her to understand that God loves every human being, no matter who we are, and we don't kill as a solution to anything. Prosecutors want Linda Krantz's testimony to help them defend the death penalty conviction for Robert Ray. Ray is on death row for orchestrating the murder of a man and his fiance before the man could testify against him. Linda Krantz assisted Ray's defense team. He now has new lawyers who argue that his original defense was flawed and that he shouldn't die. Mari Newman is Linda Krantz's lawyer. If they took death off the table, if it were not about the killing of another human being, if the state weren't seeking to execute Mr. Ray, she would happily testify. Uh, can you count again to 20, please, Greta? Linda Krantz recently spoke to reporters over a crackly video feed at the Arapahoe County Jail. She says jail time has been rough. She's sharing a cramped cell and toilet with several other women, many sick from detox. She's lost weight and is worried about her husband, who is home alone with health problems. I don't know how long I'll be here. I'm prepared to stay, and it's the hardest thing I've ever done. But Linda Krantz maintains that no amount of jail time will rattle her faith. Because I do not believe in being involved in killing my fellow human being. District Attorney George Brockler says he needs Linda Krantz's testimony to prove Ray got an adequate defense. Brockler said her religious objections could just be a ploy to help the defendant. In my opinion, this is uh, gamesmanship. This is an attempt to bring the media on board, and they've done so successfully to try to make her a bit of a martyr on the issue of being anti-death penalty. Prosecutors point out that Linda Krantz is an experienced investigator who has worked on more than a dozen murder trials and knew this was a death penalty case from the beginning. It's no surprise that when you act as the lead investigator on a mitigation case in a death penalty case that you might one day be called to testify. Linda Krantz's case made it to the Colorado Court of Appeals last week. Her lawyer, Mari Newman, tried offering the judges a compromise. She said Linda Krantz would be willing to give testimony under oath. She just doesn't want to work directly with the prosecution. This is an exchange between Judge Diana Terry and Newman. She will not, as a peaceful, uh, life-loving Mennonite, be used as a tool by the prosecution seeking to end the life of another human being. So does that, that mean she won't answer any of the prosecution's questions? It doesn't. What it means is that she is willing to testify not as a prosecution witness. It's just, that, just, does, that does sound like a semantics issue. It's unclear how long this standoff will continue. Linda Krantz could spend up to six months in jail in contempt of court, perhaps even longer. After that hearing, the state's Court of Appeals declined to let her out. Her lawyer will take it next to the Colorado Supreme Court. I'm your child while I run this In the meantime, Linda Krantz's Mennonite congregation will continue to occasionally gather outside the jail in Arapahoe County. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. While I run this
run this race, for I don't want to run this race in vain, race in vain. Musicians from around the world flock to Austin, Texas every March for the South by Southwest Music Festival. During the week-long event, hundreds of acts perform all over a city known as the live music capital of the world. Well, this year, eight of those acts are from Colorado. They include established Denver bands, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, and Tennis, as well as artists who are under the radar and hope to find new fans. Here to give us the scoop on those artists is music director over at CPR's Open Air, Jesse Witten. Jesse, welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. You've been to South By, as it's affectionately known, a few times. You're headed back. What is the scene like in Austin? I've never been. It's really wild. It's as if all the music lovers and makers in the area were given their own colony and built <laughs> it up for the week to make it exactly what they want. So. Everything is repurposed for the sake of music. You've got music venues out of, like, gas stations and barbecue joints. Everything becomes a place where sound is uh, coming out and being celebrated. Of course, there's the official festival. We'll talk about the folks who are a part of that. But then there's a lot of unofficial music being made as well, right? If not mostly unofficial. It's such a scrappy festival. We can say that there are eight Colorado artists going down, but really, we don't know who's going to just pack up and go last minute because it all just depends on how much work you're, you're willing to put in to be a part of something really special. Our list may indeed know some of the Colorado artists performing there, particularly Nathaniel Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats and Tennis. And I'll say that Rateliff's actually on our show tomorrow. Uh, but to these lesser-known acts, up first is Blake Brown and the American Dust Choir. Why don't we hear a bit of their song, Stop Shaken? That's some nice, lush pop there, and that's from the Denver band's debut album, Long Way Home, which is out tomorrow. Uh, What's in store for a band like this at South by Southwest? Well, they're an official band, which is a great opportunity. You've got your name in front of basically everyone in the music industry in a a pretty easy-to-look-up way, but it's a lot of work. You really got to want to play South by Southwest, even if you're an official band. Uh, Blake Brown has actually just gotten his schedule of the shows he's going to be doing, and he's had to change his flight, his plans. There's no backline, meaning he has to rent his own gear once he gets to Austin. And uh, once he gets to the venue to do the show, he has to unload and then find a place to park in the most unparkable place in Austin. So it really is a lot of work for the artists themselves to do it, even if they're on the official showcase. Yeah, and kind of unglamorous. But I I suppose the hope is that it leads to a life of more glamour. Absolutely. They're hoping for more glamour. And I think for Blake Brown, that might actually happen. They've picked up a very big show that I think is about to be announced. I can't say what it is, but they're going to be working with uh, one of the biggest names in country music at South By. Oh, how you tease. So Blake Brown and the American Dust Choir. I love the idea of a dust choir. It's so Western, something so lonesome about that. Uh, Up next, from what you've brought us, is the Boulder singer-songwriter Ashley Kett, and we have the track Blue Jeans. Fill me up, fill me up, fill me up, fill me up. 
Is that all Ashley Kett? Is she like layering her vocals? That one is all Ashley. I really think of her as this bedroom artist, which means just doing everything yourself, that DIY culture. But she does perform with uh, other members when she's on stage. Yeah, tell us more about her. She's based in Boulder, but from Texas. Oddly enough, she's from Texas, but she's never even been to South by Southwest before. But now is as an official act. Now she'll be taking the stage for the first time, as well as going for the first time. And what you really see with Ashley is she's a really young artist. She hasn't come out with much music. There's not much available if you were to look up her name. But a festival like South by Southwest was willing to take a submission from her that featured songs that weren't actually released. They took music from a truly underground artist and are showcasing her. It means they're taking a risk with these really fresh but talented artists. Listen to that all day. Mine. Okay. Another Colorado artist playing South by Southwest next week is Brent Coles. We've actually mentioned him on the show before. I understand that uh, he's having a bit of a a moment right now. What's his story? You know, we've been feeling the bubble of Brent Coles about to burst for years now because he's got this really distinctive voice. He's so talented. When you say that, that's a good thing, in other words. A wonderful thing. You know you're listening to Brent Coles and you're happy about it every time. But this year, things are really going to come to a head, we believe. He's got a new album coming out, supposedly in the spring, and he's actually been chosen as a slingshot artist. Oh, by NPR. Yes, NPR's slingshot program just empowers all of the public radio stations across the country to really push up these young artists' career. And Brent Coles is going to have the force of public radio behind him as he releases new music. And then he gets to showcase himself at South by Southwest, where a lot of more a lot more people are going to know his name. Now, this is exciting because we have some unreleased music from Brent Coles now. This is the song Tequila Train that I understand open air recorded on someone's porch. I've been losing track of time I've been losing 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 my mind I need a home give me peace now tequila train love stories in pocket change tell me in vain warm weather never stays the same Brent Cole's really distinctive vocals. He's one of those people that makes me wish I were a singer and I had know. that kind of voice. I wouldn't listen to music if I had a voice like that. I'd sing it all. You'd, <laughs> you'd make your own. <laughs> yeah. Brent Coles will be at South by Southwest. Now, there's another festival, I think this month, uh, with a strong Colorado presence, the Tree Fort Music Festival in Boise, Idaho. It's five days, and it's uh, the week after South by Southwest. Uh, 22 Colorado artists heading there. We don't have time for all of them, but you've selected a few highlights. This is Midwife, Song for an Unborn Son.
midwife will be at the Tree Fort Music Festival. My, this is some breakup music right here. <laughs> Something to cry to. Something to feel a lot of feelings to. Uh-huh. And when, when I found out we didn't have time to play all 22 artists, I, I thought we got to play Midwife, if nothing else. Tell us about Midwife. Yeah, Who is, who is Midwife? Is that... It's the project of Madeline Johnston, who you can also hear in her project Sister Grotto. And we were talking about Ashley Kett, how she's got a very, she's got her own sound, but she plays with others on stage. Madeline just takes the stage by herself. This is just her. And it's a very intimate experience to see her perform live. She just came out with her debut album, like author, like daughter. And uh, I can't wait to hear more from her and excited that she's going to be an ambassador for Colorado at Treefort. She did a fair bit of recording at the old art space Rhinoceropolis, I think. Yeah, she used to be a longtime resident. Okay, another notable Colorado band headed to Boise for that Treefort Music Festival is The Still Tide. What stands out to you about The Still Tide? Well, this is a project of Anna Morissette, who came to us from New York. She was in the project Arc Life for a while, and we were always just so proud that we got her. We got someone amazing from New York to come to Colorado and make a musical home here, and she's done it with this project so well. She took the main stage at UMS last year. That's the Underground Music Showcase. Of course, and she's got an EP out called Run Out, but she's also coming out with another EP this April. New stuff from Still Tide on the way. Okay, why don't we hear, I don't want to call it the old stuff, but <laughs> this is the Still Tide song, Give Me Time. Still Tide, just one of the artists heading to some big festivals going on this month around the country. You can follow CPR's Open Air on air and on Twitter and Instagram at the handle Open Air CPR for on-the-ground coverage specifically of South by Southwest in Austin, Texas next week. Jesse Witten is the music director there. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. I'm going to go pack up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a whole lot of loafing around right now in southern Colorado. Loafing is the term used to describe the sandhill cranes that make a pit stop in the San Luis Valley before flying farther north. The annual crane festival is this weekend. Back in 2016, I went down to check it out and met Suzanne Beauchene, who manages the Monte Vista National Wildlife Refuge, where it all takes place. Suzanne, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you. Describe a crane for us and describe the journey that they're on. So the cranes are very large. They're the greater sandhill cranes. They're about four and a half, five feet tall. Very elegant looking. Seven foot wingspan, so impressive when they're flying. They're actually in migration right now. They've spent the winter in New Mexico. and They'll be here for two months trying to fuel up, getting ready for their last flight up to the greater Yellowstone area to breed. Tell me why the cranes are attracted to this patch of land. So they've been coming here for tens of thousands of years. Historically, before Europeans settled here, 
It was full of water, wetlands, tons of forage for them to fuel up on their migration north. And that has continued, though there's some more intervention by man now in terms of the water, because the water is a huge feature for them. It is a huge feature for them. They depend on it for their night roosting, for when they're out during the afternoon, like they are right now, foraging for any kind of bugs or amphibians. They nest in shallow wetlands. We actually provide barley for them this time of year, and we've definitely manipulated the ecosystem in the valley, so we're just trying to mimic with what we have to provide that habitat for them. And just down the road from us, in fact, there's a pump that's, I guess, turned on and off depending on whether you need water or not. Yes. In part, we have to run pumps because the prehistoric creek that used to be there dried up in the 60s and 70s, basically due to our pumping of water in the valley. What do you love about cranes? I always, well, spring, oh my gosh, it can be really cold in this valley. So when these birds start coming back in February, last year was January, so we can still be really cold, and all of a sudden you have this prehistoric bird song in the air, big birds flying over you. Definitely a sign of spring, but to see this many birds just in Colorado, in this, well, it's a big valley, but out in the middle of nowhere of Colorado, it's just an amazing spectacle to see. It's getting a bit windy out here, and we're just before noon, They're all on the ground, these birds. What is the question you are most often asked on the tour that you give of this refuge? Um, I get really hard ones. I got really hard ones today. (laughs) Give me an example. Folks were asking me how they actually vocalize. It's like, I know they have different vocalizations, and birds, even though we only hear just a few ranges of many different bird songs... They're communicating with their partner who they mate for life with. Throughout the year, they recognize each other, and we can't hear that. So it's an amazing way they do that, but I don't know how they do that. (laughs) But you know that they do it, which is the first step. I know that they do that. (laughs) What is the most impressive sight you've seen out here? Uh, I mean, I've heard people describe that at times parts of the sky almost blacken when the birds are in flight. That is probably the most spectacular thing to see, which the visitors got to experience that this morning. We were watching the birds that were out on the barley field, fattening up for their migration. And we did spot a bald eagle and a coyote. Something flushed them, and I'm guessing it was one of those predators. And there was probably 5,000 birds in the air, and they all came over us. Because coyotes like cranes? That's one of their very few predators. But to get a crane, even a bald eagle, they have to be targeting sick ones. There's just too many eyes out there. They can't sneak up on them. And that's a huge reason why they they roost in the wetlands at night. Right now they're just loafing. They're spread out. They're not very active. They're feeding a little bit. They might be dancing to reform their pair bonds. Wait, describe what that is. You've used some avian terms I'm not familiar with. Yes. So they mate for life. And then in the spring, this time of year, they're kicking out junior. The juvenile's been with them all year. They have to go on their way. They don't breed for another four to five years. So the adults that have been paired or new pairings, they will start to dance. And some folks viewed cranes plucking feathers out of each other, throwing them up in the air, catching them. 
and continuing dancing. That was just a couple days ago. It's like, I've not seen that. I would like to see that. <laughs> so they're reforming their pair bond. So they're mating for life. That is to say, this somewhat intricate choreography is a way of attracting a partner, a, a, a lifetime mate? Yes, definitely when they're starting, but they still do this every year, too. So some of our my visitors on my tours talked about flirting. They're flirting every year. <laughs> I see. They keep the love alive. Yes. Yes. You referred to what they're doing right now, which is hanging around as loafing. That is the term. And you can see these guys are pretty relaxed. They're not, they're walking around. Some years, I have not seen it this crane festival, and I don't know why, because it's been so warm. You know how the thermals start to form when you see a dust devil? There's bigger thermals that we can't see when there's no dust in them. That's how these guys migrate. So they'll start hitting the thermals, finding them, and hawks will be doing the same thing. And they'll spiral way high up in the air when the earth is warming up. It's kind of making an invisible tornado. And then they get up to where that collapses and it's cold. And then they start shooting off north. And they don't have to use any energy. They just put out their huge wingspan and start riding the thermals. But I haven't seen that this week. It seems that there's a crane that is just about to land. Will you describe what we're seeing? Their huge wingspan, they're just gliding in. A few flaps. I mean, they're huge. The wings are longer than the whole body he just caught a little bit of wind. Looks like he's looking for a place to land that he might not get shooed out of from other cranes. And then they kind of put up their wings for a quick stop and they still have to run along the ground because they just don't softly land because they're a big bird. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Suzanne Beauchene manages the Monte Vista National Wildlife Refuge in southern Colorado. This weekend is the Crane Festival there. Our conversation was recorded in 2016 when I went down to do some loafing around. Finally today, Hindustani classical music is the traditional sound of northern India. That tradition dates back to the 12th century, and it's alive and well here in Colorado. BJ and Nabin Shrestha perform as Jam Key Jam. The duo take centuries-old music and add a contemporary twist. This weekend, Jam Key Jam will join the Boulder Chorale for a performance of original compositions as well as music by Bach and a unique interpretation of the theme to Game of Thrones. Hindustani classical duo Jam Key Jam, they perform with the Boulder Chorale this weekend. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.